welcome uh, to Monster Manual Mash number two. We are Chris Lawson and Wes Grist. We are no one in particular, and we are walking through the fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons Monster Manual. We're going one monster at a time and picking apart what makes each creature tick. We're talking about where they come from in folklore and history. We are figuring out and parsing why they stick in the human brain. And we also come up with ways to play around with the ideas in the book, as well as coming up with new directions that we want to take them in, and maybe you will too, or maybe they will be completely uh, off the rails and you don't want anything to do with them. But in any case, we're doing it, and you're listening, so this is your choice. Last episode, we talked about the Aarakocra. We have a few corrections and clarifications to make. Uh, we were way too enthusiastic, and we, like most human beings, we talk out of our asses, but we are interested in uh, learning what our ass got wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. So yeah. I had someone tell me that they thought the Aarakocra was actually pronounced Aarakocra, like like a bird yelling. Well, I guess oh. they don't yell, but like, think of it more like Aarakocra, like, like that. <laughs> that makes sense right? actually. Yeah. But if you look on the Wikipedia, which I don't know who put that there, there's a there's a uh you know, like one of those drawn out pronunciation spellings mm-hmm. with links to how the the dictionary tells you where to put the emphasis and all that, and it is uh Aarakocra, the way we were saying, but that's more evocative I think if you scream it shrilly. <laughs> if you <laughs> Yeah. And and uh, up above you see the circling of yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do that every time, yeah. uh, your players might hate you, but you will be a purist, and that's what matters. So consider that. However, it is your world. When it is your things. world. So you can you can pick the pronunciation that you like. All, I guess, like, aardvarks have two A's, and that's all. But I don't know if there's any definitive rules about, uh, like, what sound, what kind of A sound, two A's in a row. Anything goes, because it's yeah. a it's a made-up monster in Dungeons & Dragons, so mm. anything goes. Whatever you want. Next up, I think I mispronounced Diogenes. It's Diogenes. I don't know what I said. I think it's Diogenes. Diogenes? Yeah. There, I think I did it again. I even wrote it down and yeah. then got it wrong again. Uh, so that there's that. Also, it's important to note that Diogenes of Apollonia, the it's guy... different than Diogenes the Cynic. Very right? different. Yeah. Very different. Diogenes of Apollonia, we didn't, in the podcast, conflate him with uh, the Cynic, but uh, some people were asking me if it was the same one, and I didn't know, so I found out that it's not. Diogenes, I can't say it, I never will. Apollonia guy, not as interesting, and not much is known about him. The Cynic, very interesting. He's, you should read about him. He's the best. Moving on. Uh, we also talked about the different kinds of winged serpents and what they mean and where they show up. We we try to remember what the winged serpent creature associated with medicine was. And we threw out uh, Quetzalcoatl and Ouroboros, neither of which are the correct answer. Yeah. Ouroboros is a serpent eating its own tail, originates in uh, ancient Egypt and is used as a symbol in Gnosticism, Hermeticism, and Alchemy. Quetzalcoatl is a Mesoamerican deity whose name means feathered serpent. He's a god of wind and learning. He takes different forms, but is very often depicted as a humanoid, actually, um, or a winged humanoid, almost always humanoid. Mm-hmm. 
However, in Aztec culture in particular, he was depicted as a flying reptile, dragon, and his job was making, or rather guarding, and also trespassing the boundary between earth and sky. And he was a creator deity, and he created the land as well as the people on it. So nothing about medicine from either of those guys. Not that Ouroboros is a guy, or that Quetzalcoatl is a guy. But what we were talking about wasn't even the thing we were talking about. (laughs) Can you... Please clarify. I will try. The winged serpent that we associate with medicine wrongly last episode, um, and whose name we couldn't remember, is actually called the Caduceus. And it is, in fact, a staff entwined by snakes and surmounted by two wings at the top. Um, It is a herald's wand or a staff, uh, traditionally. It is a Greek symbol, Although it might have roots as a symbol of uh, a certain Mesopotamian god who I don't know the name of from four to 3000 BC, it is often wrongly associated with a, a medical profession, and it actually has more to do with the trades, occupations, and undertakings associated with Hermes, things like commerce and negotiations, and was used to denote both the planet and elemental metal mercury. Nothing to do with medicine, oh. although it's frequently used as such by people who don't know, like you and I. Yeah. What we were actually supposed to be thinking of is the Rod of Asclepius. This is a singular snake winding up a staff. Asclepius was a god of healing and medicinal arts in Greek myth. Uh, So he had these temples, and this is amazing, and you should put this in your game. He has temples dedicated to medicine and healing where you could go and you'd stay the night. And in the temple, a certain species, they don't know which kind in particular... But it was a non-venomous snake, and they would just let them roam in the dozens or hundreds through the, the, the temple. So if you were sleeping there overnight, you would just be, like, covered in snakes. But they were non-venomous and, I assume, uh, non-violent, uh, <laughs> not terribly uh, territorial. So they would just, they would just uh, have run of the, the place. The exact significance of the snake is not known. But it could have something to do with shedding skin and rejuvenation or, well, and or as a symbol of the duality and dangers of medicine and drug use, something about how a snake's venom can harm but also be used to heal because they found out that you could use snake's venom uh, if you injected intravenously would kill you, but you could also imbibe it. You could drink it and it would have a different effect. Mm -hmm. And if you played with it, you could get healing properties out of it. Some have interpreted the symbol as a direct representation of a traditional treatment of the guinea worm disease. I've never heard of this before, but it sounds awful. Any worm disease is guaranteed to be awful. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's in the name, really. So the worm emerges from painful ulcers, the blisters, the burn, and they often, uh, often the patients will try to treat his injuries, treat the uh, ulcerous blisters by pouring water on them, when that happens, the worm senses the temperature change, and that's a signal for it to discharge uh, larva. So that's uh, not. So this is something you don't want to do. So the way they try to treat it, and they still do. It's very. It's this is still basically how they they do it. They would pull the worm out of the wound over a period of hours or weeks, and wind it around a stick for weeks. Weeks, possibly weeks. For weeks, will they just keep pulling a worm out of you? They wind it, so they just twist oh. a little stick. Now they do it with gauze. Yeah. 
sterile gauze, but it's otherwise pretty identical. If I had to guess, if I didn't know that, if I had to guess, I would have said that the staff represents order and control, human mastery in the form of the staff, and then the snake winding up it is like the uh, the power of nature, the ability to do harm and heal, wrapping around the stick as a mm-hmm. as a show of the the mastery of such things, which is mm-hmm. why it would be a medicinal symbol. Mm-hmm. But the worm thing is is neat. That's really <laughs> if we can take a brief aside. That reminds me of another horrible parasite. Yes, please. That has a really interesting way of treating it. Um, the human bot fly. Mm. Do you know about this one, Chris? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what the human bot fly? It's a fly that lays its eggs in your flesh. And then when the eggs hatch, there's a worm that crawls around under your skin, just like in a horror movie. Um, but this worm, oh, it has a proboscis that it sticks out through your flesh to the outside to breathe with occasionally. And so there'll be a squiggling underneath your flesh, and then occasionally a little tiny spike will pop up because it needs to breathe. The way that you can get rid of a bot fly is it, if it can't stick its spike up into the air, it'll try to get closer to the surface so it can do that. So... Um, if you don't, if you're not near a hospital and you don't have a way of like more quickly and easily surgically removing this thing, what you do is you put a piece of raw meat on your flesh where the bot fly is and it will realize, oh, I can't breathe. Whoa. And it'll leave your skin and crawl into the meat thinking it's still your body and go to the surface <laughs> of that. It's great. Isn't that the worst? That's uh, worse than anything in this book, the Monster Manual. I'm, it's the Monster worse. Manual must have something to do with that at some point. I it's, used to scare yeah. myself shitless looking up pictures of the botfly symptoms. Google image search that when you're 14. They're the, they're the worst. There's, there's a book about them in the school library that I work at. <laughs> I don't know... You what, should like, not be allowed near that. <laughs> you shouldn't be. And it's a very friendly book. It's a very friendly looking book. No, I mean you shouldn't be because you're going to show children. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's like, hey, <laughs> you want to see the grossest I'm bug? Uncle, I'm Uncle Wes. <laughs> I'm going to show you the worst bug. Um, great. Oh, do we have more? Or I had notes? a few more things okay, to say. Great. Nothing more about uh, the staff of as, uh, as Clepias. Rod of Asclepius, that's what we were thinking of. I had also talked about how the Garuda, which is the uh, Buddhist warrior bird god, right-hand man of Vishnu. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Vishnu is not technically a Buddhist god. They all, there's a kind of mixing that I'm very ignorant about. The Garuda appears in, in many religions and cultures in that area. The Garuda is used as a symbol of military power to this day in a lot of the militaries of the area. But I omitted some famous and probably more well-known to us in the West examples of the military bird. Mm-hmm. And that would be the Roman legions, most famously. They're, uh, they were all about that. Yeah. <laughs> there was a big deal when they lost one of their powerful eagle symbols in, in Britain. And later on, the Nazis used the same symbol and they were all kind of after the same thing that divine military strength sanctioned by uh, some sort of righteous force above the morality of people it was just a divine strength might makes right kind of thing i also failed although i said the word over and over in describing the aarakocra bird person i never talked about bird person 
the character from Rick and Morty, right. who is a perfect example of a lot of the things we were talking about. Even and, uses the voice, I imagined. Well, he, he's a Vulcan. He uses a Vulcan yeah. voice, right? Yeah, totally. He's a combination of Spock and the, I forget their name, but the bird people, the warrior birds from Flash Gordon that we were talking about. Yeah. Shirtless, muscle-bound warrior types. It's a perfect example used uh, in one of the most popular pieces of culture going on right now. Mm-hmm. You had a point. I did. So the, 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 the bird people from Flash Gordon famously um, say, do you want to live forever? Right? Mm-hmm. And I had attributed that to an unknown Marine, I think, that was fighting the Pacific Theater in World War II, as I remembered it at the time of that podcast. But mm-hmm. I looked it up. I wanted to make sure we get the facts straight here. So that is um, allegedly... Um, we know the name of the person that said it. Oh, yeah. um, Daniel Joseph, or Dan Daly... Um, who was a United States Marine. However, he fought in World War One, not World War Two. Oh. Yeah. And so it was in the Battle of uh, the Battle of Bellu, Bellu Wood in World War One, where he said, Come on, you sons of bitches, do you want to live forever? Where he said that. Um there was uh for a while um a different book which was called something here. Um, Edit point uh, two. (laughs) Edit points. Um, In a memoir called And They Thought We Wouldn't Fight, um, Mm -hmm. where it was attributed to an unknown Marine sergeant. He was a sergeant at the time, though he became a captain. And what he says, he really said, was uh, written down here. So, for Christ's sake, men, come on, do you want to live forever? So, he didn't call them sons of bitches. He said, for Christ's sake, men, do you want to live forever? Um, but, uh, I, I think that that's way more British. Yeah, exactly. It's way more British, but this is an American sergeant, right? Oh, okay. So I think he, he not British. Yeah. Um, right at the tail end of world war one, he showed up there, but I, 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 it's interesting that come on, you sons of bitches. Do you want to live forever? Is the, that's specifically what's like landed itself in pop culture. So for a long time, it was attributed to an anonymous Marine. Um, but there is a Marine who has taken, uh, uh, you know, has said like, no, I was the one who said that. Um, seems to be largely credible. Here is a nice. Um, I, I just, I really love this this description of him. So, Major General Butler described Daly, the guy who said that, as the fightinest Marine I ever knew. See that? That's American. Yeah, I love that. I love describing somebody as the fightinest. The fightinest. The fightinest. And he's yeah. keeping count. However, he would know. It is still unclear whether he meant, do you want to be immortalized in the glorious field of battle or, uh, like, what do you want to keep living? Like, it's, it's still, it's still ambiguous what he actually <laughs> meant by that. And I think that is, for me at least, that's kind of the beauty of that quote is because I think the interpretation is going to change depending on who's saying it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I think the, you sons of bitches is so pleasurable to us because it, it reminds me of the sergeant in the Aliens movie. Yeah. The the post-Vietnam, uh, you're allowed to swear a lot more now. You have an angry angry black man yelling at you. We lost a war, so now we can swear. Yeah, now we movies. can swear about it. Yeah. So that's who said that. Great. Yeah. Or maybe said something like it. Yeah. Now, at 15 minutes in to the podcast about a different thing, we move on to the thing the podcast is about, or something. We now go live to the Abolith. The Abolith, yeah. Lovecraftian fish monsters from before the gods. I don't know if they're Lovecraftian. 
in the text. Hmm. I would agree that you're, I think you are supposed to think about Lovecraft, especially in earlier versions of this. But if you actually read through the description in the Monster Manual, not that everyone is going to follow what it says in there, but the Abolith as presented in 5th edition is actually, I would argue, and we'll get into it, I guess probably will be the meat of this. Great. <laughs> not Lovecraftian very much. And we, we can, we can talk about that right now. Let's talk about what the Abolith is from the text. We find out it is a dweller of the primordial ocean and underground lakes. It also lives in the elemental plane of water from time immemorial way back prehistory. It enslaved other primordial life with their minds. And then the true gods came and destroyed them. Mm-hmm. Right. They are. They have flawless memories, which is probably one of the hardest things for DMs to roleplay. I would. I would argue, because how do you? You're just one person. Mm-hmm. How do you get that across? It's, and not only does every individual Abeleth have a flawless memory, but they also pass all of their experiences on to their offspring. So every single Abeleth, Abeleth, um distinctly remembers having their empires destroyed by the gods that came after them. Like it's happening like that day. Like it's happening yeah. right now. Yeah, so they ha- they also have like a, a a weird like species wide perfect memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it also makes them treasure troves. I think that's the direct quote. They are treasure troves of ancient lore. It mm-hmm. also allows them to plot over eons. So they are a mastermind villain of sorts. They live in water. They rule their waters like despots, enslaving everything else. And they also gain the memories and experiences of things they eat. It can lure you closer to it. And it has this in the stat block, but it's kind of unclear how it works exactly. It can lure you closer to it by reaching out with its mind. It discovers your greatest desires. And then after it attracts you to it, it can properly enslave you with the the enslave three-a-day ability, the action. And then you are properly its slave. It is a like a fisher of men. It will its lure is your greatest desire instead of like a minnow on a hook. But it kind of plays with like a fish coming for you instead. Or you can if you wanna if you wanna play up that part of it. No, that's great. I didn't I didn't even think about that kind of role reversal that they do. I think it's the, one of the best parts about it. Yeah, that's great. Um what else do we have here? If it's killed, its spirit returns to the elemental plane of water, and a new body coalesces over days or months. Oh. <laughs> days or months. Just, Just blew your mind. Yeah, no, that's great. So DM's choice. Yeah, that's great. Which is similar to um, the way like fiends work, too, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't, you can't really kill a fiend unless you're in one of the 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 fiendish planes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they just get reborn there and then they can get their powers back. And then, but they, they, they reform on like in the prime material plane or wherever they died. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess it's up to the DM. But. Yeah. That's the part I don't really like about the r- rules as written Abolith right there. Like the fiends already are creatures that can't be physically destroyed on the material plane. This is an aberration. Mm-hmm. But I don't think any other aberration gets to go 
coalesce over a matter of days or months. Mm-hmm. I think it's yeah. just the abolith. So it kind of confuses what it is to me anyways. Um, it, it's, it's fine enough. Like it's still kind of an interesting thing you could play with. It just means you probably have to come up with some reason, some way, if you want your party to actually have a chance of killing the thing, you have to come up with a way of negating that ability, and that's a whole other thing. There's lots of other monsters that that's a thing already. Like the, you already mentioned the, the devils and demons, the lich is a thing like that. Mm-hmm. There are already things. Um, do with that what you, what you want. They also dream, all of them, of overthrowing the gods and regaining control of the world. So there's your villainous motivation if you need more. <laughs> they have Abolus have untold eons to plot and prepare their pr- plans for perfect execution. Perfect execution. Yeah. See that I don't I don't buy it. <laughs> because they are only a, a CR10 creature. They're only a CR10 creature. Half of the things in this book, completely roughly speaking, are more powerful than it. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why something that has perfect memory, mm-hmm. the memory of every experience it uh, takes from its prey and every experience of all of its ancestors, it has eons to plan and to lay, lay its machinations, let them do whatever it wants. It has slaves to carry out its orders. It can telepathically contact things around it. Why is it so easy to kill? Well, I think that's the thing about it is like its strength isn't it, like it's it's a, it's not a martial creature, right? Like its strength isn't how tough it is in like a straight fight because you, you in most adventures you wouldn't really encounter them in like a straight one on one fight a whole lot. Um, there'd be it'd be surrounded by its cultists in its lair where it can like do all this weird stuff with the water and it's mind controlled some of you so it doesn't have a ton of hit points and it can't like physically do a bunch of damage but that's not really its main sort of strength i don't think i think its strength is the fact that it also controls a cult right Mm. and um that uh it can do a bunch of other weird things like it um like it has its its mucus cloud, so if you get too close to it and you 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 screw up a constitution roll, basically you get too close to it, you touch its mucus, its mucus mutates you and makes it so you can only breathe water. So you get too close to it, it forces you to only be able to breathe water for uh, um, a certain number of hours. I think the same is true of its tentacle attack. Yeah. Oh, That's awesome. The same thing. Ooh. That is my dog, Casey. Hi, Casey. Yeah. Um, so I, I, but I, I, an Abolith also isn't the kind of monster that's like, oh, I'm going to fight to the death. Like they're going to escape away as soon as they can and like continue plotting. Right. So I don't think like they don't have a crazy amount of hit points. They're not that tough to kill in a one-on-one fight, but it's going to try to get away from you before you can kill it. And it's, um, powers are in plotting against you, which would be your job as a DM versus it's like individual martial powers. Right. I, I guess that's what I'm getting yeah. at. I think is that it's a... It is a very labor-intensive villain to play to its fullest potential, I think, because the monster itself, challenge rating 10 is not, uh, it's not nothing, but for the description, it's pretty low. So, but there's nothing in the stat blocks that tell you how to do the long-term setup and planning of the Abolith. It is, it, it takes a lot of work, I think, 
to make it run properly, it's still kind of a fun monster by itself in its own right, just mm-hmm. using what's what's available. But I think if you want to get the most out of it, you have to be a bit more uh, active in the greater campaign shaping of what's going on. You would kind of have to build the structure of the campaign around the Abolith's plot. Yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. Um, let's look at the lair. There's a big section on the lair of it yeah. as well. It says that they live in rocky depths of the ocean and often in the ruins of old Abolith cities. Um, that's kind of uh, either interesting or off the mark, depending on how you think about it, for a couple of reasons. One is that it's very hard for uh, player characters to get around in an environment like that. But on the other hand, it could be a really good goal to get yourself water-breathing abilities, uh, good swimming abilities. You could be riding like war dolphins in there somehow. Yeah have to make friends with the mer people all kinds of stuff in order just in order to get in there uh the other thing is that abolith cities are sort of a strange idea because i don't know if it mentions it in here i was reading a bunch of stuff about how previous editions treated aboliths they reproduce uh asexually they single like a single abolith will go into a cave come out with uh, a baby mm-hmm by themselves why would they live in groups especially if they are trying to dominate other things all the time um maybe they do i don't know i just have a hard time wrapping my mind around uh like social creatures tend to congregate i don't know i don't see an abolith being very social i would picture and uh, like i i'm sorry I'm, I'm really just kind of playing devil's advocate here um but i would kind of picture the way an abolith city working like if, if you wanted it to work, mm-hmm. like if you wanted it to work, the abolith would kind of be like the 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 queen bee or the queen ant in a city that was mostly populated by things that enslaved, and there might be a couple aboliths there, um, but like by sheer numbers, it would be mostly their enslaved populations. Um, okay, I can yeah. get behind that. I was thinking more, and I think I've tainted myself by reading too much about previous editions but people got really wacky with it and there were whole cities full of abolists walking around buying jewelry and clothes not yeah, not I mean, that part be... yeah <laughs> going to the cinema and cafe like doesn't really make any sense yeah like they're uh, like a lot of their slaves were the chul which mm-hmm. we'll get to in a future episode crab people but um <laughs> uh that uh so i don't know i would imagine an abolith city like city in a very loose term um, I'm more like a, a like a weird colony, um, like a structure that maybe doesn't look exactly like a building, um, but like has entrances and exits and like is a structure with with sections inside of it, um, you know. And and the the, the the city would be ruled by like an abolith or a number of abolaths, but would be mostly populated by whatever they enslaved. It's probably underwater, probably with some surface bits because they can move around on land too, really, right. and they can breathe air. But they so they're just they're just they're not really in their elements when they're there. So um, I, I I think I'm comparing like a human city to an abolith city is sort of like comparing like a human city to like a termite colony. Okay, they're just like totally different. Yeah, all yeah. right. But that's 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 if I'm choosing to interpret that in a, 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 a charitable way. No, I think uh, it leaves enough open to the imagination to interpret it how you want. What I'm learning is that I'm, for some reason, anti-Abolith as, as I talk about it and as you talk about it. 
I am uh, assuming the worst about the way it's described. That's not entirely true. I'm not anti-Abolith. I just don't think they do. I don't think the Abolith in the book is is the, that they've done a good enough job. There's a lot of evocative stuff, but I think it's a scattered concept. Um, we'll get into that more mm-hmm. as we play with the idea, but I still wanted to talk about the things in the book. We have more things to do with the lair in the lair section. Something else interesting, and this is, I think, actually one of the more interesting parts. They are known to surface from their lairs and their cities to talk to visitors. Oh, which yeah. Which is interesting because nothing else about it, anything in here says that they are open to negotiations or anything. But it says, it's kind of a throwaway line, they'll, they'll go up and talk to you. <laughs> if you, like, why? How? How would you arrange this? Why would they do this? Interesting things you could you could try to play around with. I think this is something you could do in combination with the fact that they are treasure troves of knowledge and history. Mm-hmm. You could put an abolith in a game, and instead of making it the arch-villain that will be ultimately confronted in the end, you could make it a goal itself to get information from it as part of a larger quest or it, the whole quest could not necessarily end in a fight with the Abolith, but just extracting information from it somehow. Yeah. And He's, you can do that by asking it nicely or <laughs> trading it something. Yeah. Or, or, or like maybe it wants quid pro quid pro. It wants you to do it a favor, you know, right. You and tell something it doesn't already know. And then it could, it could also be a strange sort of patron, to yeah. you because then it would be sort of luring you into uh slavery but not in the direct combat sense that you would think just using its stat block it would be like a slow seduction of of greed and you could have a really fun kind of like dynamic between maybe you have a wizard in the party who has a high intelligence score and is also played by a very clever player trying to manipulate the abolith. Yeah. Uh, you have the dungeon master controlling the abolith trying to manipulate the party. You have these two people thinking they're both Lex Luthor, you know? Yeah, yeah. To trick you have... everyone into completing their scheme. Yeah, knowing yeah. knowing that the other party is trying to manipulate you somehow mm-hmm. and you trying to stay one step ahead of them while both yeah. getting what you want but trying to get one up on the other Became party. Became a scheme of chess between yeah, the two it's, intellects. It's a more, I think that's a way more interesting way or like an interesting way to do it that's not necessarily explicit in the book but you can kind of draw that out. That's mm-hmm. something I got from yeah. it. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I would also, um, uh, with it, without getting too far outside of what it says on the on, on the page here, um, there would also um, you could you could have the uh, abolith because they will talk to visitors and because they are uh, treasure troves of information. They remember everything, both from people they've like done their telepathy nonsense with and just stuff every other abolith's experienced. If you need to know something of a million years ago, they found a way to defeat the thing, and now we need to remember the way, but everything's been destroyed. That's well, a good one. The only one that yeah. would know is going to be the thing that's been around the longest. That'll be the tentacle monster in the bottom of that cave. But there's a... So you would have to, A, interact with this thing um, and uh, appease it somehow, probably, which would be, I'm sure, nefarious. It would be like a, a difficult moral Absolutely. choice. Um, B, you'd probably have to try to... Um, turn a blind eye to the obvious nefarious cult that you're going to walk through on your way there. Do you try to free these people? Do you ignore it because it's not your business and get where you need and go? Um, do 
people in the world see the abolith at the bottom of the cave as like the equivalent of the oracle. Maybe the oracle is not a mountain you climb and something you speak to that is kind of inherently good, although mysterious. Maybe it's something, there's something inherently dark and slimy and weird about guaranteed access to knowledge, you know? That's 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 the direction you could take it. Like, sure, everybody knows that you can go down to the bottom of the cave and ask it for a question. Most people get mind controlled and don't come back up, but it's got your answer. Those are those are great ways to take it. You could even, along those same lines, take it to an even more. Uh, you could have the abolith be almost a prisoner to some power, either a kingdom or like a particularly powerful wizard or something as a repository of knowledge and experience. And you could have criminals executed by being fed to the Abolith who would then accumulate all of their, their misdeeds and all of the knowledge of their murders and things. And then they would do a, like a, a sort of trial after the fact and extract the information out of the Abolith afterwards and gain all of the true information that happened because you can't, hide anything from the Abolith after you've yeah, been eaten. Yeah, but the only reason the king can do that is because the crown gives him mind blank. <laughs> yeah, something right? like that. Because if you had mind blank, the Abolith couldn't do its psychic nonsense with you. Right, you'd, you'd have to have some reason why the Abolith isn't controlling everyone, or it actually slowly is, or it's doing it because this is a fine enough arrangement for itself. Yeah, three generations down the line, like, it's, it's, it's grandchildren Aboliths, are going to be able to reap the rewards of this scheme that it's initiating now. Because yeah. really, every abolith is the same abolith. Exactly. In a way, right? Like, like identity-wise. They, they, they play a long game, so it could be yeah. like, I'm just going to spend like 400,000 years as a prisoner in this society because they think they're getting one over me, but I'm actually just kind of hanging out eating for free. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I think that's While what's interesting. slowly influencing human civilization that's that's why i think aboliths it's it's not like entirely unreasonable for them to have uh for them to have ambitions of being able to overthrow all of the gods because what makes them threatening isn't their ability to be a monster that you fight that's hard to kill it's 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 their plottiness it's 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 they kind of seem like i would imagine their schemes being so there's this animated series from the 90s the gargoyle (laughs) show the Gargoyles animated show. And I think Xanatos, the villain of Gargoyles, oh, man. he was an incredibly well-crafted villain because he would come up with a scheme. And I, I, I wish I knew the plot of an episode like from the back of my head. We'll spend the first 20 minutes of the next episode talking about <laughs> it. Going over the plot. But he would have a scheme where uh, if, if, you, uh, if the scheme works great, he gets the thing he wants. And if you stop him, he has built-in contingencies that also give him something else that's just as good. So no matter what happens, he sets up events so that either way he wins. Uh, that's called a Xanatos Gambit on TV Tropes. Oh, damn. So I think an Aboleth would almost certainly always try to set up a Xanatos Gambit so that even if you thwart its initial plan, there's side effect benefits that still benefit it. That's good that's, stuff. Right? That yeah. is, we, we will look that up for next episode. So if you're putting an Aboleth <laughs> in your game, just look up examples of Xanatos Gambits on TV Tropes. Watch a lot of Gargoyles. Watch some Gargoyles. Just Perhaps just play the VHS <laughs> board game. Yeah. Just, just, just play, just recast Xanatos as a squid monster. <laughs> and you set. Speaking of squidness, their lairs have some, their lair actions. And they are a little bit squid-like. They have grasping pools. So the pools of water themselves, I don't think it, I don't know if it says tentacles, but I pictured tentacles, of course. They leap up and grab you. 
They attack you through the pools of water, and they can cast phantasmal force in their lair. So they can create illusions, and I, I could be wrong, but I think phantasmal force creates illusions that are actually able to affect you. So these are testaments to the, the Aboleth's mind powers being even stronger in their lair, and I think the lair actions are pretty good for the most part. Crazy illusions that can hurt you, and then uh, water itself being deadly, I think works because it's it's such a primordial, weird creature, and uh, water and ooze, primordial ooze. We all came from water. We were single-celled organisms before we were anything. Uh, I think making water dangerous is an interesting thing. Uh, let's talk about the picture for a second. Mm-hmm. Very different in this edition from previous editions. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, pretty good. I, what I like about this picture is the definitely looks intimidating. It looks fairly, it looks kind of big, but you see the on the opposite page you have the Aarakocra. Um, they look relatively the same size. This is just like a totally like sensory experience thing that I'm having with it right now. But it doesn't look very big. It doesn't look very big. And if you look, it's only a large size creature. It's not that big. Yeah. It's not that big. But I saw a picture of someone that had drawn in their monster manual a tiny stick figure of a person. Not like like less than an eighth of an inch tall mm-hmm. for scale. And you put that little tiny person there and the abolith looming over it. If you all flip through your monster manual and uh, at home and see what I'm looking at, put, imagine a tiny little person there and then see how the abolith curls over and looms over it. That is a monstrous Lovecraftian yeah. thing. Yeah. A little, a little like, abolith the size of this room mm-hmm. is scary, but like that doesn't create a sense of awe, in my mind at least. For comparison... What's another large creature here? Um, Are you looking up a, a beast? Let's see, a killer whale would yeah. be a large creature. <laughs> yeah. Um, a bear. A bear. All, the, all of the, the bears in the book are large. Yeah. The polar bear thing's huge, I think. Yeah, so they're not... They're not big. They're not big. They're, they're, they're roughly bear-sized. Yeah. Yeah. That's not big at all. That's not very right? big. And yeah, I don't think you think about that until you put it on the board or like really, really... <coughs> Until you really think about it, so if you, I think you need to make it uh, much larger. The picture is good, I think. The picture is great, but I think you need to make it much larger. I would, if anything, just make its tentacles longer. <laughs> Generally, good advice yeah. for any uh, yeah. creature with tentacles. So, uh, what 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 did the original Avalon look like? <laughs> I see. You can see what I've loaded up here. This is <laughs> a. Um, one of the original images of the Aboleth. I know this is ridiculous to talk about all these pictures on a podcast, but the important thing is that it was originally something that looked like, appropriately, probably only as big as a bear, mm-hmm. and looks like something that crawls around on the ground with suckers and is crawling around ooze and looks like it has little porous bits, little mouths on the sides, sides of its body that probably just is like a sewer for ooze to flow out of. It looks like something that crawls out of like primordial history. Mm-hmm. It's got tentacles, but uh, they're not particularly menacing. They're just kind of like, this one's kind of like lying down. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's kind of at rest almost, right? Like it's just kind of a weird, it's more weird. Like everything originally, it's more kind of weird and 
a little bit goofy, but also definitely unsettling. This isn't unsettling. This is menacing. The yeah. Monster Manual Fifth yeah. Edition. The, but the, the the very original Avalith picture, um, uh, really, it brings to mind um, like an illustration from the cover of a very cheap science fiction novel. Oh yeah, it's, it's totally yeah. it's totally pulp sci-fi yeah, it's, material. It's a, it's a very pulpy sci-fi creature. Yeah, initially. And but they're, but they're all kind of like in ooze and swampy black murky waters. Yeah. Except later on, they get to be the huge ominous more lovecraftian in particular things notable mention would go to the pathfinder depiction if you look at this crazy thing i don't know if you have seen neon genesis evangelion but this looks like an angel from it it really does yeah a really unsettling um anime beast and it's not in the water later depictions barely have the like the oozy water part it's emerging from water, but the water looks kind of like it's not really part of the picture. It just kind of happens to be there. Whereas in the early black and white stuff, the water is black. It's black. But this one just kind of floating in the air. So you can see the whole body and in all its uh, Im- impressive glory, all of its power. And they, but you they, lose some of the yeah. the murkiness. And it, it starts to, as time goes on, it starts to look more like a prehistoric creature and less like a weird science fiction abomination yes. yeah yeah which i um i like but i wish they would also keep the murkiness to it yeah but i like the prehistoric looking stuff mm-hmm. okay uh well, i think we also covered most of its mm. its stat block yeah but to, to describe the picture of the image the sure. current the mm-hmm. current image a little bit more i would i would say this is a pretty solid exact middle ground between a squid and a fish yeah, I'm sold. Yeah. Sure. It sort of looks like, if you imagine, like, a lamprey or, like, a hagfish or something, but instead of one tail, it's got a couple of tails that sort of seem like tentacles. That's sort of what it's like. But you can you can make them anything look like anything, because it doesn't, it's not really, as long as it has a tail and some tentacles. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if it mentions that it has three eyes. They just normally seem to have three that eyes. Just, yeah, that does, yeah, that does, even in the originals, that does seem to be the thing. One of the, the things I like, I think it's the Pathfinder image, but it, it, it looks actually like it's one eye just bi- like bisected it's or got trisected. These, yeah. <laughs> these weird, like, pointless little shutter eyelids yeah. between it. Yeah. So that is, I think, a good coverage. I think that's good coverage of everything in the book as written. I want to talk about what we started debating which was the lovecraftian nature of the thing i don't think it's very lovecraftian you could play it more lovecraftian but i don't think you have to and i don't think you're fully intended to do so even though it borrows some of the mind control culty elements um so what we are talking about when we're talking uh, when we're saying lovecraftian i'm no expert but it has something to do with there's a thing from beyond our known plane of existence. It is beyond reason, and it drives people into to suicide or into cults or all sorts of irrational behavior. And typically in the stories, the horror starts small, and you just get hints of something. And then as the adventurers or investigators go on, 
they get closer to the source and they all lose it. I've never played um, Call of Cthulhu, but I understand that it is sort of an expectation um, for all of the player characters to either die or have a complete mental breakdown by the end of it, and that's considered like a oh, good game. Like <laughs> we did yeah, the right thing. That's great. That's also that's that's essentially the plot of like most Lovecraft short stories too. Is like I write this journal as my last entry. Right. I cannot tell you the things I've seen. It started innocently enough on a Sunday morning. You know, yeah. It's it's, it's that. Or you get a you get a letter from your. Uh, long lost uncle who's on safari somewhere and he's like i'm writing to you because you're the only one that will believe me or something like that and then you have yeah. to go chase him down and he's like touched a squid he shouldn't have and is now <laughs> <laughs> oh, uncle. Yeah. yeah stop touching squids it's the third time no wonder no one else will help you <laughs> uh it's about a cosmic horror that uh like people like they, they lose themselves to the idea their mind tries even a little bit to grasp the idea that how insignificant we are in the face of these creatures, these almost alien, they kind of live here, but they're kind of on another plane of existence. They're not even conscious, but they're so powerful and important cosmically that we just uh, keel over when we try to even think about it. Um, that's not really in this book about the Abolith. Although they have the the mind stuff, what I think is the unique part of the Abolith, and the part that I would personally want to play up, is there's sort of there's a there's a primordial the vengeance of the primordial soup. It's kind of related to Lovecraft, but it's it's kind of its own thing. And I think this is where the Abolith is is best, where you best focus your energies for an Abolith. Um, a lot of the Lovecraft monsters, when they're finally described. They look like those kind of 50s sci-fi creatures we were just talking about. If you look on the covers, a lot of the early books, they will show the monster, and they look like War of the Worlds, like, the, nonsense the things. The old ones, the, the race of intelligent creatures from before humans, yeah. are like the weird tripod, flower pot <laughs> aliens, that just, like, there's no non-silly depiction of them. You can't. You can't do it. Yeah. And they're the, the, those are the old ones that discovered the secrets of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just these... And look at them. Flower pot silly guys yeah but uh the abolith is particularly and explicitly evocative of primal marine life that still exists today that's true they like the the creature that they look the most like is a hagfish i think right yeah yeah and uh if you play up the mucusy part as other editions used to play up how like it was like and they even used to some of them used to even worship uh, Jubilex, I think, is the name of the the god of ooze. The god of ooze. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I think that's even mentioned somewhere later in the monster it's a manual. Plane of ooze, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, let's yeah. let's not get to... <laughs> okay. no, that's, let's yeah. not get on the the Sorry. planes. Yeah, the demi planes. Um, but they're they're like rather than just like randomly assembled creatures, they are very much things you can look up on Google image um, that is still around right now, and. Rather than being from outside time and space as we know it, the Abolith, even in this book, started life here on the material plane. Mm -hmm. Even though they have a connection with the elemental plane of water, they were here in primordial history. They were peaking just as the rest of us were getting started. Life on Earth could have gone any direction, 
The Aboleth represents the chaos and precariousness of life, making us face the fact that we humans might be on top now, but there are things that have been around much longer that are still here today, and they're waiting in the wings to take over when we fuck it up. So I know people talk about how cockroaches are going to be around after a nuclear attack, but in the oceans, there's going to be all kinds of tentacle blob creatures that are going to not even know that we were here. Well, there's... um. Uh, sorry, sorry to interject no. for a yeah, moment, yeah. but that, um, do it. Uh, have you, do, have you heard of the Humboldt squid? The Humboldt squid. Humboldt squid. So Humboldt squid are a species of squid that are, I think they're about a meter long. They're like big ish squid. They're, mm-hmm. squid. they're big enough squid that like, it's right, right to be afraid of them. <laughs> um, and they normally live in the oxygen poor parts of the ocean that are deeper down. And they most they eat whatever they can get, mm-hmm. whatever they can get. Um, and their all of their biology um, is is designed around um, like not letting what they've tried to eat get away. So as you, uh, they have the they have eight tentacles and two arms, like all squid. And then as you get closer to the beak, they have the central beak that that, that all um, cephalopods have. Um, I think yeah yeah squids, octopus, cuttlefish, nautilus. They all have a beak. And I think those are all cephalopods. Um, as you get closer and closer, that they have inward pointing hooks that point towards it, so that whatever gets close there, it's not getting away. And each sucker that they have also has claws. They're venomous. They can change color extremely fast. They flash red and white really quickly to scare you away or to confuse prey. And they will just attack people. And as humans have polluted the ocean more and more, it's made larger columns of ocean and are like like have lower oxygen content, which has expanded their range. And so it's all like so many other fish in the ocean are dying. Um, Humboldt squid populations are exploding because more of the sea is toxic, and they they they, they can love thrive that. in that. And so, uh, uh, well after humans have poisoned ourselves and destroyed everything, Humboldt squid are going to rule the sea. And the weird thing. The terrifying thing about squid, I think, and this is this 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 is like I think this is terrifying, but this this is this is true, is that octopus, squid, um, cuttlefish, all of the those creatures, cephalopods, they are um, bizarrely intelligent. Um, so uh, a, a giant octopus can solve puzzles that cat, domestic cats can't solve, <laughs> um, uh, and, and squid are roughly as intelligent. There's octopus in in um, uh, marine biology labs. That uh, when fish were disappearing, they thought people were stealing these exotic fish. What was actually happening was the octopus was crawling out of its tank, going into the other tank where the fish was eating the fish, digesting it, having it be goop in its stomach so it could squeeze back through the vents. It traveled through the vents to get through Oh, yeah, yeah. Spend, just give yourself a little time and spend some of it on YouTube, letting the algorithm show you squid videos you will find them crawling out of places that they're not supposed to be crawling out of and mm-hmm. doing things they're not supposed to be mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there are tentacle deep sea monsters that look like aliens that are smarter than we think they should be. There we go. Right. <laughs> and they think that is like, I think that's a pretty, uh, like, I think we all, anyone who pays attention to this kind of stuff will know that there's, that's no mistake that a lot of the Lovecraftian creatures look like octopi and squids and things like that because they are, they are, uh, long-living primordial creatures that are possibly smarter than us and have completely different wants and desires than us. The abolith is is basically, rather than being a cosmic version of one, is one that's like literally right here with us. 
And maybe in previous editions, they were more, uh, I think they did come from different planes of existence and other realities and things like that. Yeah. Not this one. This one, it is, it is pretty much these, these evil toxin squids you're talking about. Yeah. What are they called? Uh, Humboldt squid. Humboldt squid. Yeah. Yeah, these, they're kind of like that. You should use that in the game if you're using an Avalith. Have those be his, his posse, the Avalith posse. Yeah. Um, something else that they do is they hate gods. Now, the gods, that's a very, uh, human centric concept. Gods are often the orders and systems and ideas created by us human types. Um, Combine their hatred with gods with their long-term planning and deep memories. Uh, the Avalith is the threat of deep geologic time swallowing us because we haven't been around for a fraction of... Well, we have been around for a fraction of time, but that fraction is smaller than the one we think it is. It's so small. We've barely been here. The Avalith can just wait and sit on it, and it hates you the whole time. So imagine like looking at the ocean and thinking of like every single creature in there either hates you or is in secret controlled by a creature that hates you. Yeah. So it hates you. It may as well hate you. And these primordial creatures, these things that could have ruled the earth and did for a very long time are just waiting to take it back. If you mess up or if even if you don't mess, do everything right in a thousand years, 2000 years, however much long however many years you're going to slip up. So these slimy globular things in the dark places are going to come back. And I think that's uh, why the Abolith sticks in my mind more so than any kind of like Lovecraftian connection. Have you ever heard of a globster? A globster? Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> I like, I've heard that word before. Globsters yeah. are strange blobs of flesh. That wash up on shore. Yeah, these ones. <laughs> you should. Yeah. Wes looked very happy when he. When I he just recognized remembered it. that these existed. Yeah. Give yourself a treat and look up globsters. There are whole data banks full of pictures, uh, conspiracy theories. Most of them have been correctly identified as uh, whale tissue, but they look. They're so large. They're they are malformed blobs of unidentifiable flesh that wash up on shore mm -hmm. and people even scientists misidentified them as belonging to prehistoric creatures that have finally um, turned up somewhere lots of conspiracy people talk think that there's some sort of cryptid um, or that they're exotic animals from different places almost always whales they're is one called the Montauk Monster, and it has an interesting uh, history. I'm just going to load it up for a second. Edit point three. Because this is something you should all look up with us. Look up the Mon Montauk Monster. It's an animal carcass thought to be a raccoon washed up in the district of Montauk, New York, in July 2008. It looks insane. And it's a real photo of a real creature. It's almost certainly a raccoon if you read into it later. Um, but this, 
So washed up on shore, the identity of the creature and the veracity of stories surrounding it have been the subject of controversy and speculation. It is not known what happened to the carcass. It is said to have mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> That's the best part. That's, That's something you can put in a game. Look up this picture, make the the places find it, and then somehow make it disappear, and you've got uh, nightmare fuel for There's your call to adventure, forever. right? Yeah. Pick one of them to constantly have dreams about it. Yes. Yeah. And be seeing it in the corner of its eye. Uh, it's it's <laughs> great. It's a great photo. Also, not necessarily related, but um, exploding whale. Oh, yeah. First to an event in Florence, Oregon in 1970. When a dead sperm whale was blown up by the Oregon Highway Division in an attempt to dispose of its rotting carcass. Yeah. It, and it backfired spectacularly. It sent whale flesh everywhere. And it's a great photo of it. It's it's horribly violent. And you can't help but have some gallows humor about it. Uh, it's, it's a horrible thing that is hilarious in... In the safety of, of fifty years or however long, um, but you should you should try to figure out a way of putting that. That's, in a, I, I feel in like a that game. is um, that's like a, a really great sort of example of just humans making a very human and very bad decision. <laughs> yes, like it, it, it's sort of like when uh, with the with the with the, the Trojan horse, one of the, the one of the main ideas of what to do with this wooden horse or gift was like, let's push it off a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> That's what everybody wanted to do. And so there's this like this whale. It's like, what do we do with this whale? We can't move it. Let's blow it up. That's what we'll do. Yeah. We'll what could go wrong? It. That's how we'll solve every problem. The the power of dynamite is second only to the power of the atom. Surely nothing will be left of it. Look up look up globsters. They're all the pictures are amazing. You should have all of them turn up in a story about aboliths and they should possibly be actually unique creatures that might get up after they're found dead, Ooh. presumed dead, or the abolith might be making a bunch of them. There's even a uh, I think it's 3.5 in all of the splat books. There was a creature that was just a human who reacted a little too positively to the enslavement abilities of the Abolith and became like a mindless jelly full of organs that would just (laughs) (laughs) walk around (laughs) trying to do the Abolith's bidding. Uh, Use the Globster if you're going to use. Have things wash up on shore. It's amazing. There's so many weird, like, marine life stuff. Yeah, is at your disposal. If you, yeah, if it's easy that. pickings. Easy yeah. pickings. You just got to know what to do with it. Um, but you you should definitely do it. And you can you can you can uh, look at weird like marine fish, like marine life, and just find a lot of the weirdest things that you can find, and you can put those on the Abolith as, as long as it's not going to drastically change what it can do. Yeah, and or if you want to change it, and it, it, it's in a balanced way, sure. Like maybe give it a weird crab claw that just does what its tail would normally do. Um, but I I like the um, thought of like possibly giving it um, some bioluminescence also. Oh, of course, because right? like there's there's all this weird bioluminescent deep sea. Stop. Yeah. See, but the, the, if you keep doing that, then you're you're definitely taking it away from Lovecraftian origins. That's you're, true. You're going yeah. more, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. I think you just uh, things are stronger, especially D and D creatures, because there are so many of them that it's easy to just kind of start making each one like all the others because there's a kitchen sink effect. It's like you may as well keep adding yeah. spice to everything until 
it's nothing but spice, right? Yeah. Let it be either, in my opinion, either it's cosmic horror and it's an unknowable being from some other dimension, or it is a long living uh, sea creature that happens to also have mind control. And this is something I would also do where it's not doing what it's doing on purpose. I like the idea of a not intelligent as we know it kind of creature Mm -hmm. where it's just like the way it fishes is by luring by like, it's not a, it's not a conscious decision by it to do what it's doing. It's just like, like you or I would use a spear, not that we know how to do this, but we would use a spear to go spear fishing. It uses its telepathy to spear humans and it's not like thinking about it it's just doing it to because it's hungry uh it's more of a bestial intelligence even though it might have all the experiences in memory it's not able to uh, like articulate it verbally the way we would want it to yeah yeah you might have more trouble doing the kinds of things we were just talking about where it's kind of like a repository of knowledge and stuff like that but that's a way of making it more like a, a beast like i remember um one of the i think I've only seen a campaign where an Ableth was present once, and it was the central focus of a fishing camp because everyone there treated it as like, you know, the old colonel, the old 50 pounder that got away. I just got to get that fish one day. But everyone at this fishing camp was losing their minds trying to get this fish. And it was an Ableth that was just living in the, 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 the lake, in a lake system. Yeah. Mind, like doing its thing, just like eating when it was hungry and walking around, not walking around, swimming around, doing its thing, but passively mind controlling everyone. So they, they stayed, they wouldn't leave its area because mm-hmm. you could just eat them whenever it wanted when it was hungry. So every like week or two, it would just grab one and make everyone obsessed with catching it. And it was just like, oh, I'm going to bed. <laughs> like it didn't really care. <laughs> That's um. I like the idea of it like, using um like a sort of inherent understanding of uh, uh psychology, whether it's human psychology or like whatever it's dealing with the, the mind of its prey in order to to hunt them. There's um uh, a creature in the SCP Foundation series, which is a creative uh, collaborative writing project where people create monsters and then write very um sterile sounding government documents about how to contain them <laughs> that sounds amazing it's fantastic and there's one i can't remember that they, they don't have names they just have numbers and there's one that what it is is like a wolf creature with a reptilian face but in the same way that uh, a vulture um doesn't really have like it has a like, weird exposed flesh on its head um it's like a wolf thing that looks like that but what it can do is perfectly mimic the sound of a human baby crying all right. And so it lures you into thinking that it's a human baby that you need to save, and then it eats you. But there's absolutely no way to tell that it's... That's way better than a cat in heat, which yeah. also sounds like a baby, and then it you does. can go to it. It doesn't eat you, uh, but it makes you feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. So you could have your Yabolith do stuff like that, too, if it wants to lure you into certain parts of its weird cave entrances. Mm-hmm. It, can, it, can, it, can, it can make you see and hear whatever, whatever it, it thinks you want yeah and that's kind of what what i had said that it was lovecraftian I, I think i meant that mostly on a pretty superficial level that there were tentacles and mind control and cults and it was from a time before gods mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i think i think the original like earlier editions of the Abolith really played up the lovecraft this one doesn't have it as much but it still has kind of like the legacy parts which include the mind control and the tentacles and all that uh, so you could still go Lovecraft and Lovecraft if you want, but I think Lovecraft works better when it's the only game in town. Yeah, 
Because if you have the Aboleth living in a world also with dragons, also with a player character could be a dragonborn or a gnome or something like that, like it's hard to be swept away by cosmic horror when you already are experiencing it probably on a low level basis. No, every it's cosmic horror. I'm a tiefling. Yeah. I have fiend blood. In yeah. Me. I am literally the devil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't scare me. Like it's it's kind of difficult to to do properly. You can still have fun with it, like if you know that it's not going to be super serious. Um, but just know that it, it. I think it works better when it's the focus, when it's the only thing. Yeah. Um, I think you should. I would. I would play up the primal horror of it, of it yeah. being this weird fisher of men. And then you can also mix in the part about it, like. I think the the rivalry with the gods kind of paints them as being pretty petty as well, yeah, right? No, it does. Like they're obsessed with it. Like they it makes them kind of too understandable and that's a very human reaction to be like constantly feeling the like the I had something and it yeah. was taken away. Yeah. yeah, that's a very human thing. If they were more inscrutable, they wouldn't care. They wouldn't care. Uh, on one hand, it makes kind of perfect sense to be permanently insulted if you remember losing, like it's currently happening at every moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Cthulhu didn't care; he has as many worshippers and cultists as, as as more than anyone. But he no, he never like recruits. He's never actively seeking out or mind controlling anyone. His he's just he's sleeping. Hurt. Yeah, his he feelings weren't hurt by anything. Yeah. He just he's literally sleeping. Yeah, and he's he's kind of waking up, and his dreams are big enough yeah. to to do the things he's doing. He doesn't care, and that's what kind of what makes him impressive. Like it's just, it's kind of like uh like if you're being hard to get, right? Like the first person to put it out there that they have a need loses. If you're mm-hmm. the first person to say a number in an interview, you've lost, right? Like. Yeah. The Aboleth is kind of wearing its heart on its sleeve by being like, damn you gods, every every single <laughs> moment of its life. <laughs> yeah. At the surface of the water. Right. So yeah. you they're almost like tragic. They're almost, I think you could, a fun way of playing it is almost like a Lovecraft, like a, a failure to be <laughs> a Lovecraftian horror that they want to be. <laughs> Didn't make the cut. <laughs> yeah. They, they aspire to yeah. cosmic horror, but they can't quite make it. I think that would be kind of funny. Like a petty tyrant sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But they have, they have all the markings. Like, they had it all set up to be a Cthulhu. Uh, that, but that at the high school reunion, they see Cthulhu's got, like, all the girls and the sports <laughs> the sports car. <laughs> and the Aboleth is just left to rot. Uh, I also thought it would be funny if you want to do the uh, play up the fisher, the fishing of men thing. If you have the Aboleth kind of overdo it in its understanding because it's not necessarily going to have a subtle human's understanding of everything if it just kind of knows what you desire it might only know the broad strokes in the way that humans will use lures and things that we think that a fish would like but probably like we have no idea what it actually wants right yeah we know it wants food but like what kind of food is it like scared by the thing we put into it we learn these things but we're also often wrong so what if the abolith is like what if you like you really wanted a beer, you were thirsty or something, and then it created an illusion in the woods of like a bar 
just in the middle of the woods with one stool and like a really like sweating over eager bartender that was like, yeah, come on, have a little drink. No, it's good. This, you got to drink from this bottle though. You got to drink from it. Like a really overactive, like used car salesman kind of thing. <laughs> like there's, there's, like there's honey... a, a, a piece of pie sitting on a plate on yeah. a beach somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just sitting there. Yeah. Or like a, you just, you see like a harem of like, 50 really good looking people mm-hmm. like all kind of doing a Baywatch yeah. situation honeypot traps yeah but in like a weird swampy cave yeah like, <laughs> like in, in in a completely inappropriate yeah. place like just getting little yeah. details wrong of of what people want um I think those are good ways of doing a a creature that knows what you want but doesn't know the subtleties of human yeah human thinking yeah uh I don't have much more, I don't think. I think I've tapped my brain on the Ableth. I did have one piece of trivia Mm -hmm. about it that I can't find an answer to. In the Forgotten Realms, the Ableths have a big major city, or they either did and it was lost, or they currently have one in their universe, but it was called The Shape of Water, which I thought was simply the title of the latest Guillermo del Toro film, and I've never heard that phrase before, and I couldn't find it anywhere, and everyone I've asked uh, couldn't answer it for me either. Well, <laughs> and, I, and we're not going to find out uh, now, but I wanted to put it out there that the shape of water was originally a Aboleth city. I don't know what year or what particular publication it's in, but it's like an old reference. So I don't know why that particular phrase has shown up at least twice in the human imagination for two very different things, um, meaning two very different th- things as well. Like, uh, I haven't seen the film yet, but um, the shape of water being something that takes, like, water takes the shape of whatever you put it in. Yeah. Which probably has some sort of meaning in the film, but I have no idea what it means for a city full of aboliths or one abolith and its servants. So maybe what's going on is uh, a, a real abolith somewhere is planting that phrase in people's heads, <laughs> so that um, we're gonna everybody is gonna try to look for a connection between them, and then that will somehow lead us all to the place where it can properly enslave our minds. Which is a, that's a way an abolith could do a thing, right? That's that's you you could um, have um, elements in the story that. Um, don't necessarily seem to be totally interconnected, um, but are, are, are weird elements of mystery that uh, are in themselves confusing. It's like when you're reading a mystery story or watching something, and uh, it's like, what does this have to do with that? What? I don't understand. And of course, it's, it's going to all connect later. Um, but what is happening is the Aboleth is, is planting things throughout the realm to, to, to lure you together. I don't know. I don't know. That's just... I went off on a tangent. <laughs> no, I think I think I can wrap that into yeah. something about uh, I forget the name of them, but the there's the the society, the people in Dune. I've only read it once a while ago. I don't remember the names of them. The it's the the Paul's mother is a member of this sort of oh, order the, the gen basalt something like that but and it's, yeah. we'll, we'll put it at the beginning of the next <laughs> so, uh but they seed cultures with 
um, particular keywords and phrases and ideas so that they kind of grow a particular culture that they want to grow there so that when a member of their order arrives there millennia later, they can insert themselves into the mythology and appear as some sort of uh, prophesized one or, or some sort of uh, special person in their mythology so they can have control over them from the get-go. Um, this is something that maybe an Abolith could play with. Yeah. Um, but again, these are all very hard things to do um, on your own unless you really want to spend the time. But I think it's totally worth it. I really like the Abolith. Um, but you, I think it's best done using a bunch of the methods and ideas that we've been talking about tonight and not just leave it at the text in this, in this book. I think it's kind of, uh, scattered and, uh, not as cooked as it could be. And it, it certainly does not work as a random encounter. No. Yeah. No. But, uh, you could weave other encounters that are random, you could come up with reasons why they would be somehow related to an Abolith. You just have to put in a bunch of work. But it's uh, that's probably enjoyable to you if you're the kind of person listening to this podcast, so go do it. I've got nothing else. I think that's it. Thanks for listening. Um, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>